This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Hey, everybody. Carm Capriato, Remarkable Results Radio. And I'm with my friend, Dr. David Wyman. Hello, Dr. David. Hello, hello. Oh, boy. Okay, everyone. We're going to talk about some really interesting things about change. And, you know, I'm just thinking all about goals that we want to set for 2024. And some people mean that's the change where it's that ugly, terrible C word change. What we want to talk about with Dr. David, why does change bother some people but not others? What are some common reactions to change in a service organization if the owner's resistance to change? How does that work? How do we get anything done? How do we improve? Can someone know that they don't like change? More comfortable with it. And being a psychologist, Dr. David from Wyman Consulting, wymanconsulting.com, I figured it would be so cool to have you on as you help your clients saying, oh, you want to do this. Very good. It's unlike you to want to do that. How are you? So thank you so much for wanting to be here. And it may just help us with getting those goals of 2024 done. Your shop's future is in your hands. Accomplish more by starting now. That's the motto of Repair Shop of Tomorrow, a Napa Auto Care exclusively endorsed vendor. RSOT is helping shops all over the nation run a more profitable business by utilizing best practice marketing and coaching. Interested in Repair Shop of Tomorrow? Call 440-545-1230 for a free 20-minute, no-obligation consultation. Let's jump in. Why does change bother some people and not others? I was reminded in prep for the show of the Mark Twain quip. There's two kinds of people in the world. One kind separates people into two kinds of people and the other kind doesn't. And I'm definitely the kind that separates people into two kinds of people, the kind of people who enjoy change. And I do think that that's part of our own style or personality. There's people who love that and there's people who don't enjoy it at all. And so it presents some interesting opportunities for conversation around so many areas of what your listeners deal with in a technical field, in a field that has connections to things that are so important to people and where change just happens all the time because of the pace of technology and how it's increasing. Some interesting observations people have made, for example, of how much changed up to a certain point before computers and then how rapidly change happened after that. And so for the folks in the category of, I don't like change very much, particularly in your field where it's so different when you look under a hood of a car from one generation to another, radically different than you need to. We had talked before in a prior podcast about a, a colleague of mine in the service field who said, well, today he was getting ready to retire and he said, today you have to be better on a computer than an engine in order to repair cars. But yeah, this I do think that some people are just constitutionally enjoy change. They enjoy when something new happens. They enjoy when things are in flux and other people. And I do think it's just, it's part of personality. I don't think it's DNA or how they were raised or anything like that. But I think there's some folks who just generally don't like that very much. That's so interesting because as I'm hearing you, you're describing a little bit of me because I believe I'm a change agent. Okay. And I love change. I love discovery and I love new ideas, new things. How could we do this old way in a new way? I'm fascinated. It's like that. There's a bobble. I'm always looking for things that would catch my eye. Now, maybe that's a disorder. <laughs> maybe maybe I, I'm stranger. 
a compulsion, maybe. Yeah. Oh, that's very good. Thank you. <laughs> Not a bad thing. The change compulsion <laughs> is good. And you're bringing up something interesting because without people testing limits, without people trying new things, nothing advances. It just stays static. And again, in your role in particular, you have the opportunity to influence people to see change in a different way. No kidding. So I'm a person that go figure it out and let us know when this thing is really baked. We got a cake and then and then come back and tell us about it. And then we're on board. So maybe there's some different degrees of change agents out there. And even within an organization itself, there's some people who have set processes and they just want folks to implement their process. And there are other folks who are looking for innovation. They want people to come up with new ideas, new ways of doing things. And I do think you can see that culture in every type of organization. All right, let's jump into some common reactions to change. The four that that come to mind most readily are confusion. Just why are we changing? Why do we need to do that? I like the way that things were before. Then you can have resistance, which is confusion plus now I'm actively working against you. A buddy of mine who works in a sales organization found that the, when he took over this group of sales reps, they all had physical like calendars where they kept all their appointments. And he wanted to move to a system that was driven by tablets, where they would take tablets out into the field. And the ones who resisted were carry the tablet, but they'd still carry around their physical like planner with them. And that was their, the resistance was real. They were like, screw this, I'm not doing that. They resisted by actively working against it. The third is resignation, which isn't great, but resignation is just where the person kind of gives up. That's different than confusion and it's different than resistance. And the fourth category, you have people who are optimistic when they hear that a change process is coming and they kind of look forward to, they see the change as something that's positive. But the psychology of change is somewhat complex. And that's why you can have all these different reactions to it, even within one team. You got me really thinking heavy with all of these. Resignation, I'm out of here. Optimism, oh, I can't wait about time. Confusion, somebody go figure it out. And then resistance is, listen, this is working perfectly. Why do we have to improve? A new piece of software comes out, 2.9, and we have to adapt to it. Every 2.8 was perfect. I can almost see that we live in this world of constant change with the tools that we use, all of our software. Oh, the screen looks different now. Oh, my God, what am I going to do? With the way that emotions are contagious in an organization, folks at either end of that spectrum, the ones who are all in and the ones who will never be in, can sort of drag the folks in the middle in either direction direction because there's there's people who could go either way who are in the middle. And so if you have hardcore I'm not doing it that can af- you, they're going to pull a few people in their direction just the same way that people who are super optimistic about it can pull folks that direction also. So that reminds me that the leader of the organization needs to be the prime change agent somehow. And if they're a visionary they kind of are because they do see that there's a future that we have to adapt to and change to. You take that person who's on the negative side of change, the role, what's my role? Do I have to sit down and listen to them and let them talk themselves into going back to the middle? It depends on how disruptive that person is being. It's super interesting, but there was the youngest professor in the Harvard Business School, John Cotter, and he had studied why change processes fail in organizations. And then he proposed this stepwise process to solving that. I think there were eight steps, but 
he basically made his name in the business world by coming up with this system to implement a change. And he wrote about it in a book called Leading Change. But number one was establishing a sense of urgency. Number two in the steps, I think there were eight again, was create a guiding coalition. In other words, you want people down through the organization all participating in working like an action team on the change process. And you do, to some extent, to address your point, you want to invite the critics to say what they feel could go wrong because you want to get that information out. You want to get that data out, but you don't want them to do that in a way that actually destroys the organization or stops the process. So getting them involved early matters. And when I've recommended to organizations that they establish what Cotter talked about, like what's the urgency here? Why are we doing it? What's the reason for it? And then we get to the guiding coalition part to make sure that we ask for volunteers to participate because you don't want to just handpick people who are going to help with the change process. And if a critic says, oh, I want to be on the team helping with the change, we show that we can handle that as a leader by including them and listening and addressing the things that they mention that are negative. If they're just there to torpedo this, then you have to make a different decision, unfortunately, about whether or not that's really the right person for your team. So, and we've talked before in prior podcasts about sort of the makeup of a team and how do we make sure that we have the right folks on board. Sometimes a change process can be diagnostic if you find that somebody's actively working against you, because that might come out in other ways and in other places too. All over our website, remarkableresults.biz, are, is a search button, a search bar. Type in Dr. David, type in David, type in Wyman, and listen to all of Dr. David's uh, shows. We've always had so, so much fun. Thank you for your support in coming on. Now, back to change, David. People tend to project their worst fears. Oh, my God. This is going to happen. <laughs> right. I've never been in a doctor's office where they said, oh, I'm going to look at the results of your EKG. I'll be back in 10 minutes where I didn't think that this is going to be horrible, like that I was going to be immediately taken into surgery for something. By the way, that never happened. And a wiser person than I once told me, most of the things that we fear the most don't happen. But when we start to tense up, we start to get overstressed, we start to think about what we're afraid of, we kind of get this little tunnel vision going on and it can be difficult to break out of that. I imagine that some of that, Carmen, and you would relate to this as well, is just self-protective. Like if we prepare for the worst, then when the news comes back, that's not as bad, then we're okay with that in a way. But I do feel like uh, you're right. Like we project into a void what our worst fears are. I don't know why we do that. And everyone in my, I was raised that way. I mean, people People were constantly worried about what the worst thing that could happen was, but that puts you on a kind of alert. The stats just don't support. That person that I mentioned who was a mentor of mine said, most of the things we fear the most don't happen, but we have a hard time remembering that we're in that mode that you described. It's Carm here talking to you about what the Napa Auto Care Center program can do for your business. You probably already know the Napa brand is the most recognized and trusted name in the automotive aftermarket industry. In fact, studies show that nearly 95% of consumers recognize Napa and associate it with quality parts, service, and technical expertise. So why not complete a pro-image upgrade and take advantage of that? ProImage is a co-branding program for the exterior and interior of your shop. On the outside, it includes the Napa colors and distinctive Napa signage. While the public may know you as a reliable locally owned business, a ProImage upgrade helps set your shop apart from the competition even further. It's also a visual signal to customers and potential customers that you and Napa 
our partners. Most importantly, Pro Image really works. This co-branding opportunity has helped Napa Auto Care Centers across the country increase their car counts and sales. In fact, those that have completed a Pro Image project enjoy an average 23% sales increase during the first year. Pro Image upgrades are also available for the interior of your shop. A Pro Image interior upgrade transforms your customer waiting area from merely utilitarian to warm and welcoming. The goal is to maintain your shop's independent identity while enhancing the customer's experience. You can get a free look at what a Pro Image exterior or interior upgrade could look like by visiting the Napa Auto Care members site and clicking on the Pro Image link under the Napa Pro Image tab. Or contact your local Napa Auto Parts store. Your servicing Napa store can tell you more about Pro Image, plus the hundreds of other reasons to become part of the Napa Auto Care family, the largest network of independent automotive repair shops in the country. Thanks for bringing up this whole healthcare thing. Always draw parallels to it. I was on a call just yesterday. We're recording this in the early part of January, which I think is so critical to get change discussed. And 59 years old and says, I haven't been to the doctor in seven years. I am not a medical doctor. I am not. But I looked at that person and I said, I think by then I was going yearly. So I don't know what the number is, if there's a number, if there's a start, if there's an end beginning. But I know in this gap of change or this fear thing, Dr. David, when I go for the blood work and I go in there on my annual, (laughs) I'm driving into the doctor's office saying, God, I hope I've done good. (laughs) Exactly. And so there's that gap of unknown and you're waiting for that. And if not, what happens next? And it not only happens, I think, in your own personal well-being, and it goes back to we all know the severe severity of heart disease. It's serious, but it doesn't make many do anything about it. And this mindset that you're talking about is key. I do think there's like in thinking about optimist versus pessimist, I think that's sort of an interesting overlay to change because I think optimists feel like them doing something, any situation would potentially make the situation better. And so going for a physical exam gives us the opportunity to get that data and then do something about it. There is a very interesting interview. I just saw a brief clip of it where Warren Buffett asks a group of people, if I told you that you were going, I don't want to misphrase or mischaracterize what he said, but my recollection of what he said is, if you could only have one car for the rest of your life, how would you take care of that car? And he said, well, that's kind of like your body. You only get this one car to drive around in. It's your body. (laughs) So how would you take care of that? And to your point, there was a study, people who believed that stress would cause physical illness. Those people got sick to a much greater degree than people who didn't believe that. And so our beliefs about these things are really powerful and our beliefs about change really matter. And that's why, just to loop back to what you were saying earlier, when you have somebody who believes that change is negative and they're scared of it and they're going to resist, they're going to show you why you're wrong. That's a really destructive, corrosive person to have in your organization. Let's talk about the opposite of that. I am a leader of my company. I've got people in my organization that are innovative, innovative. Add the word change in there somehow, because innovation in my mind means change. How do we help this great service organization of ours where technology is coming at us at the speed of light, life? How do we embrace that? So if you're negative with change, but you've got people that are innovators, you got to open your 
yourself up. You do. And if not, they'll go somewhere else. The essence of someone in a service field is they're problem solvers, right? But there's the textbook way of solving the problem. And then there's the non-textbook way. That's where the innovation comes in. Long time ago, you and I talked about a Jeep that I was having issues with because when the air conditioning was on, the inside floor was getting flooded. And the wonderful mechanic who took it out for a test drive said, can I change something on it? And I said, sure. And he said, there's a little pipe that is supposed to send water out the front of the Jeep. This was a Jeep Wrangler from the late 90s. He said, "When there's, is, does this only happen on the highway? And I said, yes. He said, what I think is happening is the wind is blowing that condensed water back up into the cabin or the, the onto the floor. I might just turn it so that it's not facing front anymore. So that's innovation. There's not, I don't think there was the manual that said, oh, if you have this problem, turn this part around. But he innovated, he figured that out, and he was checking with me to see if I was okay with that. We went off the textbook, we went off the script. We want people like that. We want people as problem solvers to come up with new ideas. And so if you have a leader of a service team, particularly the owner, who's squelching that, it's not that the ideas aren't there. They're able to use them. They're not able to put them into practice. And we will probably lose them along with the ideas because they'll go somewhere else. They're able to put that into practice. And by the way, if folks want to pause and rewind, you'll notice how Carm's voice was going up when he was talking about innovation and change because he's naturally excited about that. So when you're listening to your own employees, talk. If you see the spark, don't stamp that out. Don't squelch that. Learn more about what they think and what they want to do with that and come up with ways that you can act, let them activate that. Let them try it Let them and see what happens. I didn't know my voice went up. I had no idea. <laughs> you sounded very excited and that's awesome. <laughs> I can't help but think in the last few minutes, the word creativity is there. Innovation, creativity, they probably mean the same things. And so how does an individual at the top of an organization get comfortable with change? I mean, God, that's that's the $50,000 question. For people who are uncomfortable with it and want to get comfortable with it, look for the pieces that aren't changing in the innovation. So focusing on what's staying the same can be super helpful. Let's say somebody says, I think we ought to use tablets in our shop and here's how I think we ought to use them. Instead of just listening to what somebody's saying when they come in, we should start taking notes or whatever it is. Maybe it's not a tablet. Maybe it's a physical a booklet or something. What's similar is the customer still telling us something and we're still taking down the information. So if a, there's an owner who's a little nervous about implementing the change, look for what is staying the same. What's staying the same is we're getting information and we're trying to translate it somehow into confirming what the problem is, and then taking action on it. That is always helpful. In my own experience in consulting with a lot of organizations of different sizes and a lot of teams of different sizes, when I've said to someone, what isn't changing? You can almost see they relax a little bit. They go, oh, well, what's not changing is we're still going to do X, Y, and Z. So, And it's not typical that an organization entirely changes over, right? It's more typical that there's things that are high leverage changes that are done, but they're typically not wholesale. Everything in the organization is changing. And so it's a little easier to find what's staying the same. And that's what I try to focus someone's attention on if I know they're particularly anxious about a change process. It's fascinating to hear you. And I think for our listener, there's some motivation happening here. But talked about common reactions, confusion, resistance, resignation. I'd love you to go a little deeper into those. Like, for example, confusion. How am I going to fix that? 
What Cotter felt, John Cotter, who I mentioned earlier, was that confusion was the result of us not communicating enough about the change to people. So his solution to confusion is you want to communicate much more than you as the owner think you have to to get the message across to people. Confusion is a lack of data, right? It's they don't know why we're doing this and when did you make this decision and why didn't you tell me before and why am I the last person to know? So it's better to over like error towards over communicating than under communicating and that helps resolve the confusion. You keep people in the loop and that's where the guiding coalition having a sort of a team of folks helping with the change process, you encourage each of them to talk with everyone else about what's changing who's not on that change team because that keeps people in the loop. I wrote down as you were saying why, who, what, when, how. It almost like the word resistance. How are you going to get people to come on? I, I love the communication piece, but also to describe this is what we're doing, why we're doing it, how we're doing it, who's involved. And if that was part of that commitment to get change to be embraced, I mean, th- that's the formula for this episode. I think we basically laid it out. Without question. Oof, resistance. Now, how about resignation? I'm out of here. I mean, how can I how can I solve a person who's got that attitude of of no? So a lot of times the resigned person isn't raising their hand and saying they're resigned. It's through their action. They're just not on board. You watch their body language. They're not engaged. What a lot of teams do is the leader says, I want to know what everybody thinks about this change. And Three out of five people raised their hands. Well, what are the two who didn't raise their hands thinking? A lot of times the leader figures they don't have anything to say, so I'm going to pass them on by. But maybe we're missing resignation there. And so instead, I would say, I want to know what everybody thinks about this change, and I want to hear from each person. Carm, let's start with you. And then go around the table, go around the shop, and hear from everybody. If there's somebody who doesn't talk, then I want to connect with them privately and say, how do you feel about it? What do you think the pros and the cons are? So I want to overcome the resignation with engagement by proactively you know, connecting with them and asking them how they feel about it. Not everybody likes to talk in a group. If you have the folks in the shop all sitting there together after hours, or you had them come in 15 minutes early, there's somebody who's not talking, it's not that they have nothing to say. They're just not comfortable saying it in that setting. So we want to connect with them individually because a lot of times we can give giving the resigned person a task, a piece of something to do, small piece, can help overcome that because now they have a reason to be involved with us and that can turn that resignation around. I think you just nailed something so important. I'm leading my company. We have a 2.8 piece of software coming out in our shop management system. It's going to do this and this. We've been waiting for this. We're going to fix and change this. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Who wants to learn this? Who wants to fix this? Who wants to be in charge of that? I love engaging, if you will, the team. And if they ask and someone doesn't volunteer, I can say to that person, John, I know that you're awesome with X piece of this other software. I'd love your help with this because I think you understand totally how this, like when we finalize whatever it is or when we've done a measurement of something, you're just really good at that. I'd love your help with that. I imagine certain egos get in the way of people not wanting to volunteer or my persona in the business is I'm the the smart but quiet person and I believe in this thing, but I'm not going to show it to anyone. (laughs) To your point, if someone isn't vocal in a meeting, we need to commit to ourselves to do a one-on-one and see where that person is, stands, and what they're willing to do to make it work. 
that doesn't have to be a huge investment in time, but simply having that one-on-one makes a difference because they're going to share data that they weren't sharing in when there were other people around. So bring your observations and your intuition to anything that you know is a going to be an important big step or change in your company. Okay, Kaizen, I can't help but think about these small, great, mini incremental positive things that we can do. One of the things that causes change processes to fail is they're all in. They want to change everything at one time. That can blow up pretty spectacularly. So with one organization that I worked with, all the big wigs, the higher ups, the the folks in the front office figured out a change to a process. They rolled it out. They didn't ask anyone their opinion. They didn't talk to anyone in advance. They didn't want to hear the resistance. They didn't want to see the resignation. And it, it just really backfired. People refused to do it. So they wound up having to spend three times as much time on the back end redoing it. They had just gone like step by step. The Kaizen method is, or Kaizen is implementing change in small incremental steps. That is also part of Cotter's model where you celebrate small wins. You don't want to implement six things at one time because even in mechanical terms, making individual changes lets you see the result of that before you make the next change. If you try to do too many things at once, it's very difficult to figure out the root cause when something goes wrong. And they regularly go wrong in change processes despite Cotter's model. Sometimes you have to move back a step, but the small change Um, piece is really important. And just a real simple example, a friend of mine wanted to start getting up an hour earlier every day so that she could work out in the morning. And that was her, it wasn't a new year's resolution, by the way, you mentioned that we're at the beginning of the January of January. It was just a change that she thought would be helpful. So she told me, she set her alarm for an hour earlier right away. And she said, it was just super hard to get up. Like sometimes I keep hitting the snooze button on my phone or alarm clock. And she wound up not getting up an hour earlier. So in thinking about Kaizen, I suggested that she get up, set the alarm five minutes earlier and try that for a few days. Once she got comfortable with it, set it for five minutes more earlier. So now she's at 10 minutes. And by making these incremental changes, which are almost unnoticeable, she was able to get to waking up an hour earlier. And it seemed easy because of these incremental changes. And there is something in psychology called the just noticeable difference. And it tends to be, it's the degree to which something has to change for you to notice that it changed. For example, if you were listening to the stereo in your car and we turn the volume up a little bit, you might not notice it right away. It would have to go up, and I think it's a constant of about 10%, if I remember Psychology 101 correctly, that something has to change for you to notice it. Or if you're working out and you're using 10-pound dumbbells, increasing it by half a pound is not something you would likely notice. It may have to be more than a pound, more than 10%, for you to notice that it's changing. And so in a service environment, picking small things to implement gives you a chance to see how they're going over, see how the team is adapting to it. Then you put the next step of the change in and see how that goes, rather than doing everything at once. I need to clarify this. Just noticeable differences. I love what that means. And it was at 10% rules. If I was free waiting and I went from 20 to 30, that's too much? Well, you would notice it. 
I would notice it. And is that good or bad that I noticed it? It depends on what you're trying to achieve. If you're trying over a longer period of time to have incremental change, you would change it by a smaller amount. There's a personal finance guru, Clark Howard, who does a radio show and pot. But he, he did this with running. So he just started running a little bit more every day. He was ultimately trying to achieve, at least this is the way that he explained it. It's not that you wouldn't increase by more than 10%. It's that over a long period of time, if you wanted to gradually change and build up, that's how you would do it. The companies that listen to my show that we influence in the industry are listening to this and you know that this is going to be a, a big year for you. You're, there's going to Maybe you're going to buy a place, maybe you're going to remodel, maybe you're going to buy some new equipment, maybe you're going to expand and add a, a technician. All of these things that are going to happen to you, you need to start thinking, how are you going to make it all work? You can physically do this thing, but then you've got to bring the people along with you. And I think this is a great episode to listen to, be it if you're a pro change, your change agent, or you're deathly against it. Your company will never grow, blossom, survive if you're not inside of, I hate to use the word change again, forward progress, maybe develop momentum. This is really important too, what you're saying, because the customer doesn't want to get freaked out when they come in and everything has changed. So for the customer piece of it also, it's easy to explain to them, if we started doing something, we're going to send them email alerts or email follow-up after we check their card or a text message. And they're not used to that. What's the same is, hey, it's the same mechanic that you've worked with, Bill, you've worked with many times before. We've just implemented one thing where now we send a text message when your car is ready, or now we send a text message that includes what we diagnosed or whatever it is. We have to be aware of how the customers going to see it too. And when we have customers that are bought in, what did they buy into? They bought into our values. They bought into our mission. They bought into our purpose, how we treat them. And so that's unlikely to radically change. But if we're implementing something that affects the customer too, then being aware of that and the potential impact on them and reminding them of what's staying the same. That's why I said, hey, Bill's still servicing your car. We're just using this method to stay in touch with customers along the way of the service process. That's something that that would be easy to implement. I loved this. Thank you. I think it's a perfect time of the year to discuss change. I got to tell you, I learned a bunch of things and I'm sure our listener did too. Dr. David Wyman, Wyman Consulting, psychologist at WymanConsulting.com. If you learn something and you feel that, ooh, Dr. David got to you, go do something with it. Thanks, Dr. Dave. Thank you for having me, Carm. Thanks for being on board to listen and learn from the premier automotive aftermarket podcast. Until next time... 